and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for our last episode in the month of April. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here on this fine audio program, one of many I'm sure you are listening to. That's fine. You have made the choice to listen in on this one at this time, and we thank you oh so much that we can all be back together once again. Absolutely. And uh, you say we, you are not just a single person talking crazily into a microphone. <laughs> not that other podcasts that do that are all crazy people, but you know, um, I am the other voice on this program. This week I'm Dennis, the man who wants his last ride to be on a giant monster truck, followed by thousands of motorcycle riders, just like DMX. <laughs> Well, you know, we're uh, getting up there in age, and uh, we are <laughs> men of a certain age, as I've said many times on this program, that, uh, I mean, you know, it's prudent to uh, start planning for uh, when the inevitable happens to uh, to you and I, and uh, we've just gotten a uh, a good example of uh, what a uh, a final ride can look like over the uh, the past several days, thanks to uh, uh, DMX, who uh, got a hell of a send-off uh, to and at his memorial service in Brooklyn, New York the other day. Yeah, I believe it was between Yonkers and Brooklyn and it was lit, like, I don't know the exact numbers. I don't know the exact times, but from what I understand, a lot of the streets between Yonkers, like there's a, obviously a path that they took as, through as the funeral procession, but I think the path that they took as the funeral procession, procession did shut down traffic for an extended period of time because of, you know, the sheer volume of people as a part of it, because I think it was sort of like, from what I understand, almost open invitation to anyone who was a DMX fan who, who had a motorcycle who could get there in time, because it literally looked like an extended version of the, the Rough Riders Anthem video. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, good. If you don't, look it up, and then you will know what I'm talking about. Yes, it's uh, it's basically a big motorcycle rally taking over streets in uh, various parts of a city. But uh, this was DMX's last ride, uh, the procession to uh, his memorial service at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York. A crazy that his mem- that his memorial service was at an arena, like a full professional, like full size basketball slash sporting arena. But two, then the thousands of, or what appear to be thousands of motorcycle, uh, enthusiasts slash DMX fans who followed behind him. If you haven't seen it, uh, we'll post a link to it, uh, in the show notes for this episode on our website of the arcadeshow.com. It is worth checking out, uh, at the very least to see the sheer volume of people riding in close proximity and none seem to wipe out. This always, that's a fact that always impresses me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, getting back to that in just a second. Also, in case we didn't mention, I did mention it, but just I'd like to drive it clear. DMX was on a monster truck. Like his casket, bright red casket, shiny, expensive looking deal in the bed of this giant monster truck, like an, a Ford F-250 from what I understand with the full tractor wheels and everything on it with the Rough Riders logos on the front and back and like long live DMX on the sides. So, like, a custom, like, exhibit-style pimp-my-ride vehicle made with, you know, for this occasion, <laughs> what it looks like. Um, just, you know, just to, 
put that out there one more time just for context of how ridiculous this is. Not a typical hearse. <laughs> you know, like that's not normally how caskets are transported. No, just freely and it it did not appear to be secured down or strapped down in the bed of this monster truck either, which I found a little unsettling. Like what if you hit yeah, a no, hole? Yeah. I mean, granted they weren't going super fast, but yeah, I guess also to your point, it's always impressive to see like tight groupings of people on bicycles or motorcycles kind of maintaining their speed so consistently so as to that, you know, not cause any sort of like awful pileup. Cause I'm sure we've all seen those things more. It's, you know, it's seems to happen more often with, um, you know, bicycle races and stuff. And it obviously that can be devastating as well, but not life endingly devastating like a motorcycle pileup can be, but still it's, it, it was impressive. And I don't think there was any wipe up, wipeouts record, like reported or anything. Uh, not that I saw, uh, or not that I've uh, read, but, uh, uh, very impressive. And yeah, that's, uh, to the point you were making and really wanted to stress and talk about the monster truck aspect of this, uh, being the vehicle that carried DMX's body to his memorial service at the Barclays Center. Ridiculous. And it looked like a full, as you said, custom job. Uh, a detail that I noticed that uh, I don't think you caught, but uh, if you watch through it, you can notice it in the videos, is the center hubcaps in the wheels of these tractor tires that are supporting the monster truck body of this uh, vehicle, uh, emblazoned with the DMX logo, but they're not spinners, they're basically counter spinners in that they just remain in the same centered position the entire time, regardless of the fact the wheel might be in motion. Yeah, so, you know, arguably just as if not more impressive than regular spinners, because regular spinners, you know, the bringing the illusion that the car's still in motion when it's not, whereas this almost brings the illusion that the car's not in motion when it is. Absolutely. So, uh, another little detail. I guess that's why they had to wait a couple weeks for the memorial service. They had to wait and build this monster truck to carry him. Yeah, I guess so. So, very impressive. And, uh, again, contrast that to the funeral procession for Prince Philip. Very recently. Yeah, that, that is also very true. I mean, his was a, well, I mean, I don't want to say it's like unimpressive because, you know, it's still, a rich person with a procession, like, you know, but his was a Land Rover, which, you know, is admittedly a little bit more of like a stereotypically British royalty type, um, a British hoity-toit type vehicle that, you know, you, you put in your head with that type of person and that's not what you would put in with, you know, like a rapper necessarily. Uh, but yeah, very kind of like somber and just, typical British royal funeral, which, you know, is what it is, I suppose. But yeah, very contrasting. You know, no, no motorcycle riders other than, like, I, I didn't really watch much footage of the Prince Philip one other than just seeing a couple, you know, mentions here and there. But I assume there wasn't the, the thousands of motorcycle riders that there were the DMX one. Uh, no, I believe it was just a uh, uh, family and other close relatives walking spaced out uh, behind the vehicle as it made its way to the Abbey, I believe Westminster Abbey. Could be wrong on that, but, uh, you know, subdued affair, typical amount of British uh, stiff upper lip and stoicism. 
And then compare that to the, the, the wild and craziness of a thousand person motorcycle ride procession behind DMX's monster truck, which I guess as the memorial service was happening inside the Barclays Center, there was still a crowd of people uh, outside the venue as it was happening. Uh, a video I saw that then sent to you and made you laugh was uh, something that was posted online to the social medias of at some point during the, uh, the services, people are outside. There was a like 20 to 30 foot albino python just on the ground amongst the crowd. Yeah. No rhyme, no reason, no context, but I don't think there needed to be just giant albino python. <laughs> yeah. Again, contrast that to Prince Philip's funeral where there was no giant albino python. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, insert no, yeah, joke I- here. Yeah, insert joke here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, not that we saw. Whoa! Uh, anyways. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I, it was, a, it was an impressive display for the procession of, uh, DMX, and I wonder if this will, uh, start off a, uh, a new business venture for people of, uh, instead of hearses, uh, there are casket carrying monster trucks for, available for rent for memorial services. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's certainly a uh, a potential business idea. I I know I'd be down to uh, arrange for one of those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, you you need like the uh to work out the specifics of uh you know, what that would mean and everything and what you would maybe want to call your monster trucks and stuff because I mean, you don't want to do something in poor taste like, you know, hiring gravedigger or something, but uh yeah. Although at the same time, the the big professional monster trucks that are out there on the uh, Monster Jam tour, uh, you know, they only tend to work, uh, you know, a couple days a week, so they're available probably for rent outside of that. I mean, let's face it, they really only work Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a little rejigging, you just uh, strap it down to the roof of the vehicle and uh, yeah, you got Gravedigger um, some of the other grave digger trucks, cause there's a whole family of grave digger vehicles or affiliated vehicles. And, uh, which if you didn't know, yeah, there's, there's a family of grave digger affiliated vehicles on the monster jam tour. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's uh it's a hell of a thing, but, uh, DMX, I say given the proper send off. <laughs> And that about wraps up this week's edition of the Arcade. So <laughs> we thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Well, we, we, uh. Thanks for tuning into this week's mini-sode. <laughs> mini-sode, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but instead of, uh, that, that, uh, false finish there, we shall move on and, uh, talk about some more hilarious things, or at least things that, uh, are just an extra special kind of special. Those are the news items that caught our attention. Perhaps they flew under your radar, but, uh, deserve to be, uh, you know, lifted up, pointed out for some comedic purpose. We will attempt that in the ludicrous leadoffs where we have two news stories this week. They're wildly and vastly different from each other. So we'll start with the first one that is of a much smaller, more grounded scale. And uh, while it's uh, not perhaps as wild and crazy as some other ludicrous leadoffs we've had uh, in recent times, uh, it is kind of uh, centered around a- an existing game franchise and property being appropriated into something that doesn't really look like it should be appropriated into. 
Yeah. I mean, this was one, I mean, I'm sure because we're of the same age, we, I'm sure both of us grew up with these books and we have a specific thing in our head of what they are. And there doesn't really feel like there's, um, you know, <laughs> any crossover between the two franchises. So the, the two franchises we're talking about, first of all, Assassin's Creed, you know, you might think, okay, they're a crossover with Assassin's Creed. Like, so maybe what is this like a drink opportunity or, Oh no, we, we mentioned books. So maybe, maybe it's some sort of like, you know, novel franchise or something is introducing Ezio as a character. Like maybe yeah. there's some sort of like historical drama happening or something, or maybe some sort of young adult fiction. Like maybe there's going to be some spinoff with, I don't know, maybe Twilight's going to try to try to do some sort of like, crossover type thing or something or maybe some know. kind of maybe some kind of romance novel series yeah fine but no um i mentioned you know our age and the only reason why i would bring that up is because of like you know shared type experiences from childhood and when we were children these were i i mean i i'm sure the books are still around but at least when we were children they were things that you know i saw around like i had a few of them you know, they would always be available for, you know, more of them. Like there was a lot of them. Uh, and you know, they were always in abundance at the various libraries and whatnot. Um, but this series of books was called the, what well, it took on two names because there was books for both boys and girls and they were the Mr. Men and little miss books. They were indeed, they were uh very simple kind of books with, uh, uh, Individual stories based on, you know, one character, uh, for that book, but there was a whole pantheon of characters in the Mr. Men and Little Miss series. And, uh, oh god, there's as many Mr. Men and Little Miss characters as I think there were Care Bear characters at the time. You know, there'd be, I think in similar veins, there'd be a, a Mr. Grumpy or, you know, Little Miss Sad or, or something like that. So a lot of them focusing around kind of emotions that, uh, you, that the authors could teach kids about. Yeah. Uh, you know, emotions or experiences that you can use the characters to teach kids about. But uh, as you said, yeah, they were around. They've been around for a number of years by this point. But recently, Ubisoft announced that they have struck a deal where the Assassin's Creed franchise and some of the Assassin's Creed characters are going to be getting their own Mr. Men and Little Miss books. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a little bit, um, it's not a little bit insane. It's very insane. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I don't even know what kind of shape this would take. Like, this is, this is insane to me. Like, the, the, those little, the, the Mr. Whatever and Little Miss Whatever books were always, yeah, like you said, like, a character with a single, um, hook, just to kind of teach some basic concept, like, you know, exactly like emotions or, you know, like a concept of like what someone was like. One of the books I remember I had was Mr. Messy, where it's just like, well, you know, Mr. Messy does this and that. And like, you know, you know, he, he became friends with like Mr. Clean or something like that. And like their skills complement each other now and things like that. So it's like teaching opposites, teaching what things are and generally like, yeah. So what would be the thing that they teach with? Assassin's Creed? 
Uh, well, obviously, it's uh, a love for the Assassin's Creed franchise, and therefore the young kids will grow up to uh, buy the games. Uh, or teach them how to be better assassins from a younger age. Sure. Because uh, in this series, uh, there's going to be six books, three of which have been announced already. Uh, there's going to be Mr. Ezio, Little Miss Cassandra, and Little, Little Miss Ivor. Uh, Ivor being the... Uh, character from the most recent Assassin's Creed Valhalla game, where it can be a male or female, but in this instance, they are using the female version of the character. And they're giving it the full, like, little men, or Mr. Men, Little Miss treatment, in that Ezio and the other characters look like they belong, uh, and are, in fact, Mr. Men. Like, they're very simple, side-profile characters, and all colored with one primary color. So there's that, but it's still, at least from what I saw of the Ezio character, he's wearing his, you know, his hood and his white robe and whatnot. So I don't know if he's going to have the hidden blade on his wrist and just, you know, have to go kill the Pope or something. I see. Yeah. I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I don't know what Mr. Ezio would, or M. Ezio would be, because... There can't be really much more than one hook to these characters, right? I, your guess is as good as mine at this point. I, I'm not entirely sure, uh, because they're going to be still used in a children's book. So it's, it's simple. It's short form, you know, easy to convey concepts and constructs, uh, simple language. So what, what could you do? Yeah. Is it Mr. Ezio goes to the store? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. You know, Mr. Ezio has a fall and it's him doing one of the ridiculous uh, dives off a high point in the Assassin's Creed series. Yeah. And it's him falling for five, six pages. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, you know, him... Yeah, I don't know, like Ezio with his various, you know, mentors and stuff that he, you know, reached. Like maybe, maybe it's just him talking to Da Vinci or him doing, I, I, yeah, I have no idea. Ooh, Ezio teaching kids how to be a better student as he learns from Da Vinci and the, the other people he encountered in the games. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, all right. So we're writing this first book, but, uh, or, you know, if we were, we'd be getting the money for it, but instead it's uh, going to be, Worked on by Adam Hargraves, who is the son of the original creator behind the Mr. Man and the Little Miss books, that being Roger Hargraves. Uh, Adam Hargraves, the son, is also the current writer and custodian of all new Mr. Man and Little Miss books. So he's keeping it in the family. And perhaps him and his familiarity with the franchise and the characters in the books, uh, he'll have a much better idea of what to do with these characters who are from an entirely different realm than the Mr. Man Little Miss books. Yeah. A better idea than what you or I can conjure at this current moment, because the, the concept is just too insane for us to grasp. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And that seems to be a, a theme, really, of, of existence in the past several years, that uh, reality uh, is just a little bit uh, too crazy for us to grasp. A, a lot of that craziness has come in the past several years from the political landscape, um, 
uh, depending on what side of your aisle on, it's either been great or it's been horrible. Uh, and, and of the craziness, it seemed like, uh, you know, crazy caught up to the realm of satire, as we, I think we've spoken about on this program and certainly we've spoken about off air, where satire would always be something crazy that, uh, was, uh, done for comedic purpose to illuminate a point or illustrate a point. Uh, the world and reality seem to catch up to satire. But in that time where reality caught up to certain levels of crazy, we have turned our attention away from the realm of science, which often on this program we would discuss because science would go crazy in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this one is, like, it's straight up what happens when, you know, life imitates art. I mean, it doesn't always happen right away, but when it, like, sometimes it takes a couple of decades for it to happen. And when it does, we're going to talk about it. To me, this is very similar to when, I mean, not in terms of content, but it's a similar idea of what happened when there was that guy, like, if you remember, like, a few years ago, probably like 10 years ago now, I even think we might have talked about it on this program, but it was this guy who was, you know, he was a, a larger gentleman and he was, um, he was suing an all you can eat fast food restaurant for not providing him all he could eat. <laughs> and that was, just, that was literally something lifted right out of the Simpsons. Like the the internet went wild with it. They went like, Hey, this is just, you know, tweeting at Conan O'Brien and things like that and being like, Hey, this is, didn't you write this? Like, this is, this is the thing that you, like you came up with like in the early nineties. Like what the hell? Like, this is like, Right out of The Simpsons. Like, it's like, and it's, yeah. This is that, but for the movie Total Recall. <laughs> yes, it very much is. And uh, there's a chance you heard heard about this item uh, over the past couple of days. If you haven't, we proudly bring it to you. And I'm sure we will, you know, butcher it, uh, you know, and make the actual scientists and and people involved with it cringe, but that's fine. We're going to have our own say with it. But uh, if you recall the movie, the original 80s movie, Total Recall, not the Colin Farrell, uh, more recent adaptation, but the original one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, a, a big component yeah. of that movie is uh, certain parts of a colony on Mars being starved of oxygen. <laughs> yes. Well, that means uh, mankind and humanity was able to produce oxygen on Mars. Uh, and now, recently, thanks to some uh, proof-of-concept experiments done on the uh, you know recently landed Perseverance rover that is on the Martian surface, uh, we have demonstrated, yes, it's a, that we as a species are able to produce oxygen from the Martian atmosphere. <laughs> now, the, you might think, oh, that's, you know... Okay, maybe there's oxygen already, you know, in the Martian atmosphere. It's maybe not that big an accomplishment. Well, actually, friend, it is a big, big accomplishment because majority of the atmosphere on Mars is carbon dioxide. It is not sustainable for human consumption. No, not at all. And so um, thanks to a, uh, a test that was done by what is, what is called the MOXIE device, on this Mars rover, on this new Mars rover, uh, it was able to produce roughly five grams of oxygen, which may not sound like a lot. And in the grand scheme of things, no, it's not. That roughly equates to like 10 to 15 minutes worth of oxygen for one astronaut. 
So it's it's really not a, a, a whole lot, but it's a proof of concept that, yes, the process can work, and we can actually take the Martian atmosphere, all its carbon dioxide and, and a few other gases, do the process to it, and have oxygen at the end of it. Yeah, just in case you're not aware, that's a big deal. That is a, a huge deal if ever humanity wants to be able to expand beyond this planet. Yeah, so, uh, granted, at the current stage, like, it can really only, they're really only able to make, like, about five-ish minutes worth of oxygen, like, so don't get your hopes up just yet, like, we're not that far along, but, like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like, it's a start, like, like, everything, everything needs a start, right, so this is that start. It absolutely is that start, and uh, uh, I mean, in future experiments, future devices that are sent to Mars to test out this uh, concept that has now been proven to be effective with the uh, equipment that just did the testing the other day, it's going to be a matter of scale and scaling up and how much oxygen can we produce. Yeah. Now, this device that was on the rover doing the work is apparently the size of a toaster, which is not that big. So do we need to send up dedicated devices that are, you know, the size of monster trucks, perhaps? Yeah, maybe. So so oxygen on Mars is now a thing that can happen. <laughs> yeah. So how about that? Science coming back and be like, hey, world and everyone's attention. You've uh, you've ignored us for a while, but uh, we got this thing over here. It's called Mars. You can't really do a lot with it, except, oh, we did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I like, like all science type things like this, where you don't see the immediate benefit. You have to think bigger than that. Like sometimes like there's always things that, you know, well, traditionally it would have been NASA and whatnot, but you know, these days it's not really NASA. It's unfortunately sort of driven to the private sector a little bit with, you know, Tesla and, um, star, well, whatever, like was it SpaceX and stuff? SpaceX um, and uh, I think Blue Origin is the Jeff Bezos company. Yeah. So unfortunately it's driven a little bit towards the private sector now, but the reason why traditionally these things are done, these quote unquote frivolous things are done is because there are, you know, far reaching benefits to them. Like, like if you can, like, for example, the, uh, by building the outer shell of like the old spaceships and stuff to be able to withstand heat up to a certain, you know, a, like level of degree without breaking down, without showing signs of, you know, wear and tear and stuff, they basically were able to develop, you know, that, that has practical applications in things like, you know, cookware and things of that nature. Or, and even like, you know, compounds that you can put into car tires and whatnot. And, you know, like, yeah, it's, there's lots and lots of benefits that, you know, s potential space travel and like experiments like these can have. Like, hell, even, even I'm sure there's places in Earth where you might want to be able to, uh, 
convert carbon dioxide into oxygen. Like, actually, that sounds like it could potentially be, you know, something that scuba type, you know, equipment and stuff can benefit from as well, right? Like, how often do we hear stories about, you know, scuba divers who run out of air in their tanks and then, like, if they're with a second person, they have to kind of, like, share a tank until they can make their way back up to the surface or whatever else. Like, if this is basically a renewable oxygen source, hey, there's no refueling ever needed. That's true. Uh, Your mind went to thinking of scuba as an application. My mind went to thinking of uh, air pollution and a way to uh, uh, clean up air pollution for parts of the world that might be heavily industrialized, uh, perhaps areas with a lot of uh, highly polluting uh, factories, you know, smokestack areas that are emitting a whole lot of carbon dioxide. And this might be this sort of technology would be great for that. Yeah. Of course, it would have to scale up. And again, this is just a proof of concept. The device itself, the Moxie device, uh, is going to be doing, a, going to be used a whole bunch more. Uh, the initial test that provided these results the other day was really just to see if the device held up in transit. Yeah. Because that's a rough ride going from Earth to Mars. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That, that's not a hop, skip, and a jump down the street. This is, uh, uh, you know, being launched at high speeds to break the, uh, you know, pull of gravity here on Earth. And then you're traveling through the vacuum of space and then the descent or ultimate descent onto the planet surface on Mars, which is subject to its own forces and speeds as well. So that's, uh, it's not an easy thing to do, but it got there. It works. And it's a hell of a thing that we can do this. Now, when I read this, my mind, you know, initially a couple of days ago, my mind also went to the fact that, oh, okay, we can eventually use this as a means to set up colonies and bases on Mars. Cool. And then my brain after that jumped to the fact of, oh, this will be how the rich people get their way off the planet that is being destroyed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they can then move on to a new planet and start the destruction anew. Exactly. But uh so – for the people involved at NASA and on the Perseverance rover and those who designed, built, tested, and conceived of the MOXIE uh, device that did this testing, congratulations to all of you. Uh, we tip our caps in your general direction, and it's a it's a hell of a thing. Now, if you might be thinking, okay, well, how soon can we you know scale this up? Again, this test only produced five grams of oxygen. And at most, this device should be able to generate up to 10 grams of oxygen per hour. So five grams, it's gets you maybe five to 10 minutes of breathing air for an astronaut. So you're not getting a whole lot off this device. And what yeah. one of the eventual uses could be to produce the oxygen needed for rocket fuel to get astronauts off the planet of Mars and come back to Earth. But they need like 25,000 kilos of oxygen to make that happen. Yeah, exactly. So that's a lot. It's not really going to uh, happen anytime soon. So, yeah. But the uh, uh, the nice thing is, too, uh, in what I was reading about this device, the, the Moxie device, is that uh, it worked exactly as the designers were hoping it would work. And because it worked out the way they planned it here on Earth they're able to go and run similar tests here on Earth uh, and uh, 
it, with the the information they're extrapolating from the Martian device, and uh, they don't really have to test, you know, a device on Mars as much anymore because they can be pretty sure that what they've done here on Earth will translate to what will happen on the Martian surface. So, hooray! So this just means the uh, production cycle and scaling up of this technology uh, is only going to increase, and it's going to be that much faster. Yeah. So uh, good on everyone involved, and uh, Total Recall is just that much closer to being a uh, real thing. Or yeah. some aspects of Total Recall. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I mean... Maybe we, maybe the thing of Total Recall is that actually when they look at like the quote unquote ancient Martians who put like the reactor and everything in place, maybe that's us. <gasps> oh my God. So we're just that much closer to uh, realizing that yes, Quato lives. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, let's move off there, move off the ludicrous leadoffs and into the actual news items of this week. There was uh, some very newsworthy items that came down. And uh, if the uh, Olympic Committee or, or Olympic Organizing Committee in Tokyo is to be believed, the pending summer games in Tokyo that are set to happen in July uh, are going to uh, basically still go off, uh, despite the fact that... Uh, Various parts of to uh, various parts of Japan and Tokyo as well are under increased uh, lockdown because of uh, COVID flaring back up again. Yeah, we'll see if that comes to pass. But in the past few years, there's been a push on, I guess, the part of people outside the International Olympic Committee and some within the International Olympic Committee to try and modernize the IOC and try and make it uh, in line with what the uh, the people are doing these days. Make it more hip and cool and you know, maybe incorporate more esport events into the actual Olympics uh, instead of having things like archery or uh, skill shooting or things of that nature. Well, it seems the IOC has uh, perhaps found some a bit of a middle ground as the uh, big multi-sport organization this week announced that they're forming something called the Olympic Virtual Series, which is going to be a new Olympics uh, branded event centered around esports and sport-centric video games. Now, this is going to happen. It's, it's going to be a satellite spin-off event. These are not events that will happen in the Olympics proper. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. But uh, all these Olympic virtual uh, or games played in this Olympic virtual series are going to be games based on real-world sports as opposed to things like League of Legends, Overwatch, uh, Call of Duty, uh, Fortnite, uh, anything of that nature, any massively popular online game right now will not be part of this event. Yeah. Uh, somewhat makes sense, I guess, but, uh, you know, the door is now opening to video games being involved in Olympic events. But uh, the big, uh, big issue with having... Uh, esports as part of an actual Olympic event is the fact that there's no single international organizing body for esports. You know, there's in the way that uh, international hockey events are governed and handled through the International Ice Hockey Federation, men's and women's, or there's a track and field international body, or there's a swimming international body. 
they handle the events, they handle all the qualifying events and all the criteria and that sort of thing. Then they just funnel their athletes uh, off and I think still have some sort of administration authority over the event at the Olympics as well. (laughs) Yeah. So these virtual events will be handled by individual sport governing bodies that will have a video game to be played that is in line with what their sport is. For example, uh, one of the international bodies that will be part of this Olympic virtual series is the World Baseball Softball Confederation, which is a horrible name. Yeah, the WBSC for short, if acronyms are your thing, which... You know, they're not really my thing, and I have to encounter too many of them in my life. Uh, but the WBSC, the Baseball Softball Federation, Confederation of the World, uh, yeah. The, the Fed- they, Confederation of Allied Baseball Softball Planets. <laughs> yes. They're working with Konami, and uh, the competitors who will be competing um, in this Area will be playing eBaseball Powerful Pro Baseball 2020, which is a very Japanese sounding name. <laughs> that, yeah, that's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, eBaseball Powerful Pro Baseball 2020. Now, like, not just like, yeah. Yeah, now, which is the worst name? eBaseball Powerful Pro Baseball 2020 or the World Baseball Softball Confederation? <laughs> I mean, they're both a mouthful. A mouthful of baseballs, am I right? Whoa! <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I, I don't really know what shape that game actually takes. Um, but the next one actually makes more sense to me because I've, I've seen it around and, you know, I've, it looks more like an actual physical event, which is more in line with what the Olympics actually are. Uh, the cycling will be represented by Union Cyclist International, International, UCI, uh, with competitors playing Zwift, which is a cycling MMO in which players use physical exercise bikes to control their avatar, which is pretty cool, actually. Like, there's, you know, you, there's, um, as long as you have, like, a cadence sensor on your bike and, like, you know, heart rate sensor and on yourself and stuff, like, it's basically like you hook up all this stuff on a computer and then, you know, you open up the Zwift app and it connects to all these different things and then it just knows it's able to tell based on the, the cadence thing on your bike and your pedals and stuff, how many watts you're generating and what your heart rate is at that ter- current time and stuff. And as such, we'll put you in, you know, whatever place in the race, which is, you know, pretty cool and actually more like a real bike race because they've, from what I understand, like they've programmed in things like, uh, yeah, like, like, Amount of like, like being like in with a group of cyclists, letting you draft a little bit and stuff, as opposed to being, you know, out in the front or by yourself having like greater wind resistance and whatnot. So that makes sense. That's kind of cool. Um, but there's a couple of other ones that I've really, I've never heard of this next one. Seems like kind of interesting to me. <laughs> um, first of all, I, is sailing an Olympic sport? I didn't think it was. Uh, sailing is uh, an Olympic event. I think there are different classifications. Uh, you know, one, you know, one sail, two sail, or one foil, two foil kind of things. Uh, perhaps different distances. But yes, it is an event. 
like the Summer Olympics is kind of unwieldy as an Olympics with uh, there being a lot of events that you might not realize are actually still events. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, I guess for the competitive sailing side of things, the World Sailing Organization are the WSO, <laughs> which, which is a funny, it's a funny acronym for us in Winnipeg because that's the same acronym for the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. Um, <laughs> they're, they're working with Virtual Regatta SAS and the studio's sailing race simulator, Virtual Regatta. So they're covered as well, I guess. Uh, they are with the sailing. There's also the Fédération Inter- Internationale de l'Automobile, the FIA, which represents the Virtual Series' motorsports events. Uh, those will be happening through Polyphony Digital's Gran Turismo. Yeah. And finally, there's a rowing event governed and handled by the World Rowing Federation. But what uh, uh, digital eSport equivalent they are using has not been announced. All it's been said is that their event is open format. So potentially what that might mean is they might just basically require some sort of like video feed or something. And maybe you have like an array of different types of rowing machines you can use maybe. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps they will rig something up with, uh, uh, perhaps a Nordic track, uh, uh, yeah, or a, like one of those like, concept, like a, like a, maybe one of those concept two rowers or something like that. I'm sure that one feels like a, a an easier problem to solve than, um, perhaps virtual baseball or something like that. But, uh, yeah. So, so again, the five events, the five sports being covered in this Olympic virtual series, baseball, cycling, sailing, uh, motorsports, and rowing. Yeah. So I can't say that uh, any of these cover the popular gaming spread or what people would really want included when they think of esports in the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, there, no Fortnite, no... You know, Call of Duty, no, no, none of the, the big popular games. But again, the IOC sticking with the fact that uh, these events uh, and these games are actually going to be digital versions of actual real world events already or real world sports already. So, uh, it, it is a thing. Uh, IOC president Thomas Bach in the press release heralding this announcement, he said, quote, the Olympic virtual series is a new unique Olympic digital experience that aims to grow direct engagement with new audiences in the field of virtual sports. Its conception is in line with Olympic agenda 2020 plus five and the IOC's digital strategy. It encourages sports participation and promo- uh, prom- uh, promotes, hard to say, promotes the Olympic values with a special focus on youth. So this Olympic virtual series event itself will be taking place on May 13th. And again, the uh, Tokyo Summer Olympics are set to take place in July in Tokyo. If we get there, you know, the COVID's still a thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, so do you have any Olympic dreams that can be fulfilled with some of these Olympic virtual events? <laughs> I mean, I haven't played a Gran Turismo game since the PlayStation 1, but uh, if there's one there that I think I could probably – well, actually, maybe the baseball game too. I'm not sure. Though I did a quick Google search because I'd never heard of this game before, and it's a very cutesy-looking baseball game, which is a little bit surprising that it's not even like a realistic-looking one. Which um, Oh, does it have, uh, you know, almost uh, chibi, cutesy characters in it? 
Yes. Exactly. Like, they almost look like a hybrid between Funko Pop characters and... Do you remember those Playmobil, um, like, like, uh, oh, the, figurines of people, like, with the, with the big rounded heads with no, with no, with just eyes basically on them? Uh, yes, and the, uh, the claw-shaped hands and, uh, they were very skinny and straight figurines. Yeah, kind of like that, except their hands are just little circular orbs in this game, it seems. I think I've seen this game before. I think I have, I'm generating an image in my head of uh, what exactly it looks like. So, all right then. I not the game that I would think. Doesn't seem yeah. doesn't seem very simulationy, but all right, here we are. Uh, so, yes, if you are out there and perhaps have Olympic dreams that can be fulfilled through digital versions of sailing or rowing or whatnot. This could be a thing for you. You just have to qualify through the international governing body of these various sports that are going to be putting on these events. And like I said, this is the issue with trying to get esports into the actual Olympics as actual events. There's no individual single governing body for for all of esports. So, yeah, that's how the Olympics are administered. Baseball is handled through the the World Baseball Softball Confederation of Allied Planets. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But uh, so that's the IOC. Uh, Olympic uh, virtual events are going to be a thing in that they are virtual esport events. Uh, don't know if it's going to be an in person thing. That'd be interesting to try and pull off. Although with it happening May thirteenth and the current lockdown situation in parts of Japan, that seems like a horrible idea and unlikely to happen. Yeah. But let's move on. And speaking of uh, Japan, we'll stick with the uh, with Japan and speak of a Japanese company that has uh, seen fit to reverse course. In that Sony has announced this week that they will uh, not actually go ahead with the closure of the digital storefronts for the PS3 or PS Vita. Yeah, so they've decided to keep it open. Um, yeah, so. Their initial announcement back in March, uh, of, well, last month, they were saying that they were closing down the PlayStation Store for PS3 and PSP on July 2nd, 2021, and the PSN Store for the Vita on August 27th, 2021. Though, in a letter to the community, Sony Interactive Entertainment, uh, the president of Sony Interactive Entertainment, uh, Jim Ryan, said that it was clear that we made the wrong decision here and that the stores for the PS3 and PS Vita will continue to live on. However, PSP commerce functionality will still end on July 2nd of 2021. Um, and the quote here from him goes on to say, when we initially came to the decision to end purchasing support for PS3 and PS Vita, it was born out of a number of factors, including commerce support challenges for older devices and the ability for us to focus more on our resources on newer devices where a majority of our gamers are playing on. Uh, we see now that many of you are incredibly passionate about being able to continue purchasing classic games on PS3 and PS Vita for the foreseeable future, so I'm glad we were able to find a solution to continue operations. I'm glad that we can keep this piece of our history alive for gamers to enjoy while we continue to create cutting-edge and new game worlds for PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, and the next generation of VR. Thank you for sharing your feedback with us. We're always listening and appreciate the support from our PlayStation community. End quote. So I wonder how much of this actually came from people 
panicking, thinking that this quote-unquote shutdown of the store would mean that they wouldn't be able to download games again that they already purchased. Because that's the impression I get. After talking to some people about this, my clarification was trying to be that, no, like, you'll still be able to download your games, but they were like, yeah, but, like, until when? So... Well, in theory, in perpetuity, but, uh, uh, yeah, no, I see the point. Because when we talked about the story last month, there, there was a, 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 I mean, there was a clarification and stipulation that yes, you'd still be able to download or re-download games you've already purchased. You just would not be able to make new purchases. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I will admit, I was surprised by the uh, blow up in the community, the, the gaming corners of the internet, social media and whatnot, that somebody was shutting down these, these legacy storefronts and people being more upset about it than what I would have initially thought. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if it's because of the understanding that you have that, hey, by doing this, you won't be able to actually download stuff that you've already paid money for, like it's basically, I'd be, I'd be pretty mad too. It'd be kind of like the equivalent of someone coming into your house and basically just like looking at the shelf where all of your PlayStation 3 games or whatever are on. And it's basically grabbing the whole shelf and going, okay, bye. But that's not what they're saying they're doing, obviously. Like they're, they're still saying, like, I didn't see anything in any of their reports saying that they were shutting anything down from being able to be downloaded again. No, nor did I see anything to that effect either. So this may have been a whole lot of uh, wrong-headed, misguided uh, uproar and furor. Um, at, at the same time, I think as we talked about, you know, with, it, with when the story initially broke back in March, what does it really cost and what is the, the actual output of, of energy or effort on the part of Sony to keep these legacy storefronts running? Well, I mean, I know that, you know... In, you know, the development world, we would call something like this technical debt. And the goal of any development team or whatnot is to kind of try to rid yourself of technical debt. Um, what I could see, like, what, like, yeah, I, I think the fact that they're now sort of like, it's not the same store. It, it's tricky because now, they need their, they need an old system to be receiving security updates and whatnot. And they need to keep updating an old piece of software for an old system that they're, that hasn't been in development for 10 plus years now. They, they need to keep making security updates for it or like they'll need to make changes to this extra piece of software now whenever they want to roll out some new piece. Like maybe they change how they, you know, um, how they, they have, how they work with their payment gateway or whatnot, like with their credit card processors and things like that. And these things do change fairly, well, not frequently, but like, you know, often enough that, you know, standards change, new terms of service have to be agreed to and things like that. So, you know, the, the less things you have to kind of keep in flight, the better, obviously. So like, it makes sense for me, for them to want to stop making it possible to download things. But having said that, then it's like, well, if they had backwards compatibility baked into all of their new systems, this wouldn't be an issue, right? 
because then then you could confidently say, okay, we're shutting down the PlayStation Three specific store, but you know if you just want to buy PlayStation Three games still, just download them on your PlayStation Four, buy them on your PlayStation Four version of the store, or like on your PlayStation Five, get them on that version of the store. But because they don't do backwards compatibility, this is where the the uproar comes from because it's like, well, you still have this store available. I could still potentially keep buying classic games through this store that, you know, I'm just basically slowly working through a backlog and I didn't want to have to spend thousands of dollars up front, you know, but it's it's easier to spend, you know, $15, $20 here and there. So, yeah, it, it gets tricky when you see, like, like if if there's, like, it's that cost benefit, right? Like they were probably at the point where they were willing to say, okay, we're, we're still making money on the PlayStation three version of the store, but maybe the maintenance of it, you know, is too much of a cost, you know, every time we need to do maintenance on it. And therefore it's just a thing we want to sunset. But now, you know, in their, their position, it gets even trickier because now you have millions of people to kind of mollify <laughs> who might not fully understand the scope and scale of like what keeping a store like this open means. So yeah, I, I get, I, I get it. And it, it kind of sucks for them to have to keep it open, but it's also due to decisions they've made as a company. So yeah. A self-inflicted annoyance. Yeah, exactly. Now, now that being said, uh, again, pointing out the fact that the PS3 and, uh, PSP, uh, or PS Vita, uh, storefronts are still going to, uh, continue forward for an unspecified amount of time. The PS, uh, or PlayStation Portable PSP storefront, that is still going to be sunsetted. That is still going to be shut down effective July 2nd. Yeah. So two of the three devices that were being sunsetted will still have digital storefronts after the summer. Uh, one of them uh, did not escape the, the guillotine or the chopping block. Make of that what you will. But I think it's, a, you know, can't it be considered inevitable these digital storefronts will eventually be shut down? I mean, I think so. I mean, it, this is the tricky thing about digital storefronts, though, right? Like, you still need to make the products purchased available because like they're not physical goods. Like physical goods have that one time, like you bought it. Now it's in your hands. My hands, like my involvement in this transaction is now complete because it's digital good. And you're basically buying a license in, you know, because there's no restrictions on that license. You need to basically provide it in perpetuity, which is why I think I can see the, game world moving more towards like, you know, a streaming style license in the future where it's like more like Netflix style where you have access to all these games this month, but next month you might not have that. But that's a different discussion. Um, but for this, like, yeah, you need to keep the ability to download up, but yeah, you'd think like, to me, it makes sense where it's like, okay, well, we don't want to have to support the purchase capabilities on this platform anymore. That's now just kind of like a bit of a security nightmare and like, yeah, developing these things. It's not just a simple matter of just like developing it once and then you're done. No, like you have different like architectures that you have to be targeting and like it's not the same app. I mean, I would try to make it as close to the same app on every system as possible if I could, but 
you know, there are going to be annoying things where it's like, okay, well, we're not pushing out new software updates for this thing anymore. So without new software updates means that we don't have access to X, Y, and Z. So now we just basically need to like make one-off updates that are compatible with this old piece of garbage software that's 10 years old. So yeah, which is why like the shutting down the purchasing capability makes perfect sense to me, but you need to provide people an alternative. Like if they still want to keep purchasing old games, you either need to provide backwards compatibility or you need to start porting old games to be available on new systems. Which is going to be a, a cost in, in both, uh, you know, time and money and effort in its own right. So it can be argued what's the, what's the cost benefit of doing that versus just the cost of uh, maintaining status quo, really. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, if they still have to, uh, have these digital, have these digital games able to be purchased again, but if you remove the, the purchase aspect, then you are keeping things, the, the digital files, ultimately in like a warehouse. And if you've got things, if you think about it as a physical good, if you've got something in a warehouse, it's not really going to do you that much good. So why not put it up for sale in some way, shape or form and possibly make money off it? But at this point, given the age of everything, and I'm sure a lot of people moving on to PS4, PS5, or other devices entirely, the likelihood of you getting any sort of actual purchase transaction through that old legacy storefront is greatly diminished. Yeah, but but again, like you can't really think of it like a warehouse because it's not a perfect analogy. I mean, it's similar, but like digital files are not quite you can't think of them in the same way. Like what you're thinking of is two different systems. Like you're thinking of where the files are stored for people to download, provided that they have the license to do so. That's one thing. And then the other thing is the ability to, you know, put monetary, put a monetary transaction through to actually then dole out the license. So that's, that's the part that they want to shut down. And that's the part that, where all of the security really actually matters. Like at the end of the day, it's like, who cares if like, you know, like it's just a file. Like all, all you're doing is basically like they're doing a check of like, does this PlayStation account have the ability to download this one thing? If, if so, yes, you can download it. Fine. It's a file warehouse in that sense. Like, yeah, the warehouse analogy works for that side of things, but it's not a, it's not a thing of like, it's just sitting here and we, we don't want it sitting here to, because we are not making money on it. You've already, you've kind of like painted yourself into a corner already by, with this whole license thing of like letting someone buy a license to this thing to have it, to make it available forever. But yeah, the secondary system being, okay, so to be able to dole out these new licenses, you need to actually give us your credit card information. You need to have security, like modern security around those types of systems. And if you don't, like you're basically just like asking for hackers to start stealing people's credit card information. So that's the part that, you know, I can see them wanting to shut down and it makes sense to want to shut it down, especially if it's, you know, like this is like, seeing its age and we really don't get much traffic here anymore, but like the traffic we do see isn't comparable to perhaps, you know, our current 
consoles because that the majority of people are on the current consoles. But yeah, it's it's tricky. Was this uh, just a uh, communication faux pas on the part of Sony? I think so. I mean, like, because, yeah, like, the understanding isn't, like, if it was me, I would say, okay, like, they should already be, like, the place where the files are being hosted, that should already be sort of like an understood cost. And that can probably literally be like the same server's where they already are using for new files and stuff. Like it's literally just like files and an, and an ability to serve files up and over a network for people to download should they need to download them onto whatever arbitrary thing. So it makes perfect sense to me to just basically never delete any of those files. Like here's where all of our games are. It's in this, you know, we'll just say it's in the gaming cloud somewhere because it probably is a in a cloud-based thing of some kind it's it's just kind of like for all intents and purposes in some data warehouse that's never going to go away that that's already sort of like an accepted cost on sony's side of like okay well we pay this much every month for data warehousing so that's fine we've already kind of like eaten that cost and that's part of our business expenses cool but like which is why it makes sense to me that like those wouldn't, those are never going to go away. Like fine. Like there's no real additional cost to keeping files available for download. As long as like when someone clicks download on a PlayStation three, the, the resource on the internet still there should be no issue. Right. So fine. Like, and that's probably why they were saying like, yeah, we're, you can still, still be able to download anything you previously purchased, but yeah, it makes perfect sense to me that they would want to sunset the ability to purchase old games. But yeah, it's, I feel like it's probably a communication thing, but you never know now. Like the more I think about it, maybe it is people who like genuinely were, you know, looking at this as, as a thing of like, oh wait, this is the way that, you know, I, I've been slowly backfilling the PlayStation 1 collection because you can still buy PlayStation 1 games on the PlayStation 3 um, store. I mean, it's not every single PlayStation 1 game, but it's a huge amount of them. So, like, maybe if that's a thing you've been doing, like, yeah, maybe now you're at the thing where you're like, well, no, I, I want to keep being able to do that. Like, I want to spend $3 a week on a PlayStation game <laughs> or whatever. So, fine. So, maybe it is, like, maybe there is a lot of people like that. But I'm leaning towards people who actually have the games where they want to be able to turn their PlayStation 3 on and still download it because they had it in their library. Like, I think it's probably just like a miscommunication of like, no, you'll still be able to download anything you had previously available. Like, it's literally just a list of things connected to your account. Because I do know that like the PlayStation accounts that's the same system across all three. Like that's PlayStation three, four and five. Like you can still see all of your PlayStation three achievements and stuff on your PlayStation four. At least I don't know about PlayStation five. I can't buy a PlayStation five because they're sold out everywhere. <laughs> but um, yeah, probably a miscommunication thing. 
But speaking of Sony, we have another Sony-related news item this week. Uh, actually kind of ties into another Sony news item I believe we spoke of earlier this year, if not late last year. Uh, that being Sony's decision to remove video content uh, or the ability to purchase video content from the PlayStation Store. Uh, news this week that Sony is actually rolling out video content again, but as an additional perk for members of the PlayStation Plus service in Poland. Now, Pol- it, this is a year-long test that's being done in Poland or with people who are PlayStation Plus members in Poland. But yes, only Poland for right now. And it's uh, something called the PlayStation Plus Video Pass. And it's access to a streaming content library curated, only so many selections in it at the current moment. But that's how you'll be able to get uh, your video fix if you are a member of the PlayStation Plus program. Yeah. But only in Poland. Only in Poland, yes. <sighs> Poland always gets the good things. <laughs> yes, of course. So it's a, it's a test that, uh, or trial run that began, began on uh, April 22nd, will last 12 months. And as part of this initiative, all PlayStation Plus subscribers are getting access to this new PS, uh, PS Plus Video Pass app. It's available on both PS4 and PS5 at no extra cost, and it will allow them to stream a selection of movies and TV shows to their consoles. The initial batch of 15 films and TV programs are all uh, coming from Sony Pictures Interactive. Uh, so there's... 15 films, sorry, six TV shows, uh, and it, it's a mishmash. It's uh, things you can already get in other places. You know, things like Bad Boys, the original one from 95, uh, Jumanji, the next level, the most recent Jumanji movie yeah, with, with um, The Rock. Yeah. Uh, ooh, Charlie's Angels from 2019. Necessary. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and and Sausage Party and, you know, the second Zombieland, which I don't know if I ever actually saw, come to think of it. Um, anyways. Well, there's also the Venom movie in there as well, which uh, yeah. make of that what you will. But on the TV side, there's uh, the show Community, the show Future Man, Deadly Class, SWAT Seasons 1 and 2, and the show Lost Girl, which if this is the show I'm thinking of, that was a Canadian program. Huh. It's a Canadian program that aired on the Showcase channel here in Canada. Uh, to anyone outside Canadian borders, this is all entirely lost on you. But uh, Showcase... Well, it, it won't be entirely lost on you. It's the network that brought you Trailer Park Boys. That's true, too. And we'll, Which, speak, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Yeah. But I believe Lost Girl was a uh, uh, fantasy, kind of dark fantasy adventure mystery or mystery series about a uh, woman who is a succubus <laughs> and uh, can absor- you know absorb energy from people and then it's going into the realm of like werewolves and dark fairies and and the fae or whatnot and other mythological creatures so yeah yeah i think if this is the same show i think it's that it was a canadian series it was all right but weird that this Canadian series that ran for five seasons on Showcase here is part of this trial run in Poland. Yeah, well, especially one that was so kind of like open with its sexuality. I mean, I, I, 
I vaguely remember she wasn't a straight person on that show. And this um, is true too, yes. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I might be unfortunately pigeonholing Poland a bit, but I don't know if they're the most progressive place in the world with that type of stuff. Um, but yeah, very, very strange and interesting. And also just my thought was like, yeah, very much, uh, sort of, uh, I actually don't know if it was a showcase show. I'm just, oh, it was showcase. Yeah. So very much a, uh, almost like on the two extremes of things that showcase would produce. <laughs> and this falls a hundred percent in with stuff that would have for sure been a showcase show. Which means nothing to you if you're not a Canadian, but uh, if you are a Canadian around our age, you know what we're talking about. There's a thing called Fridays Without Borders, people. That's, that's right. Uh, if you were a, a prepubescent or adolescent boy growing up in the 90s, uh, late 90s, early 2000s with a showcase as an available cable channel on your home cable package, uh, you certainly recall watching uh, the Drambui Showcase Review. <laughs> Yep, the Drambui Showcase Review, which included, what, Red Shoe Diaries and... That's right. Uh, if not Red Shoe Diaries coming after that, but uh, yeah, the Drambui Showcase Review, it, it, it was a branded partnership deal with Drambui Liqueur. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was, uh, you know, your avenue to uh, see some, maybe see some boobs. Yeah. And uh, perhaps see some simulated sex scenes. If you were a teenage boy and that was the thing you're into, that was the avenue of how you would get it. <laughs> yeah, that and, you know, that crazy new show Trailer Park Boys when it first came out. Which, um, yeah. Yeah, another Anyways. extreme of the showcase uh, spectrum. Yeah. Ridiculous, like, super Canadiana. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, so, yeah, very, very interesting. I mean... Yeah, but it's another streaming service. And again, I think most of these movies and or TV series you can already, with the exception of Lost Girl, I don't know if that's available on anything I personally have. But yeah, most of these series you can kind of, series and TV, series and movies, I should say, you can already <laughs> kind of see on any of the other ones. Not any, but like many of the other ones, like chances are it's either going to be on Netflix or Prime or Crave or if you're in the States, Hulu maybe or you know, something, something like, so, some other avenue or perhaps even you can just watch it freely on YouTube or something like that. Uh, now, I get the play here on Sony's part. This uh, is a trial run to basically have a value add to the PlayStation Plus, Plus membership, but does it really do a whole lot? Does it offer a whole lot? Well, what I could see is like maybe like they already do provide TV show episode downloads and movie downloads through the PlayStation Store, but it's on a very much like a la carte per episode and or movie purchase basis. So like you could purchase like every individual episode of a TV series for like 99 cents each, but maybe they just might be finding people don't care about that model because the streaming thing is, you know, far easier. And it's just like, I just prefer to spend, you know, my $10 a month and get unlimited access to whatever I want. And frankly, I don't care if it goes away at the end of like this, you know, month or whatever, like as long as I can get through these three series of this TV show, I'll be fine. 
and maybe they are just trying to like shift their offering more towards that model because maybe it's just not a profitable model that they're currently running. Entirely possible. Uh, in, I mean, then it really, as you said, just becomes just another platform, another service with content that's widely available elsewhere. Yeah, and exactly. F- for Sony, it would not make sense to have uh, this platform be entirely Sony content because then you are losing out perhaps on, on rights or payments from other providers, other streaming services that are, are already paying and carrying your content. So sure, it, it's a thing. We'll see if this trial run extends beyond Poland after 12 months. If it goes anywhere else, the content I believe is going to be rotated and changed quarterly. So there is that, but yeah. Would you be interested in this uh, PlayStation Plus video pass, you know, the the added bonus of uh, streaming video content with your PlayStation Plus membership? Let us know. Email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up on social media at The Arcade Show. But one last news item to get to. We moved from Sony to speak of Microsoft, who finally followed through on something that really shouldn't have been a thing in the first place, but... Uh, Microsoft following through on an announcement they made earlier this year to uh, bring games that were free to play from behind a paywall and put them in front of the paywall that is the Xbox Live membership. And they have finally done that with uh, a number of titles moving out from behind that paywall. They've done it all this week. So good on them for following through. Yeah, there's a big list of uh, games there, but yeah. Basically, TLDR, tons of games that they said were going to be free to play are now actually free to play. So if you have, you know, an Xbox, maybe go check it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look like it's, uh, you know, all killer, no filler on the list. But, uh, hey, free to play is free to play. So uh, uh, take it when you can and go from there. But uh, yeah, always boggled my mind that Microsoft would have had free to play titles behind a paywall. Yeah. It's a little bit strange. I mean, yeah, well, given that these are multiplayer games and I mean, I don't really know a lot about the Microsoft, the Microsoft Xbox ecosystem. I don't have one, but I think you need to have gold to be able to play games online with people. Uh, Yes. That is my understanding. Yeah, so these games are typically, like, mostly multiplayer games. So on, in that regard, like, it wouldn't make sense to give you, like, the three-on-three freestyle game for free to download, but then you not be able to actually play it because you don't have Xbox Gold, maybe. But maybe that's still the case. Maybe it's just like, hey, all these games are free to play now. Oh, but to play them online, which is the only way to play them, you actually still need to be a gold member. So, sorry. Maybe that's what they're doing. So close. You're, you're just this, just this close. Oh, but, uh, pulled the carpet out from under you at the last minute. Oh, but I actually, no, that's not the case. In, yeah. in the quote here, they say, as part of our listening to your feedback, this change will take place during today. Uh, all Xbox players will be able to access online multiplayer at no charge uh, for a library of over 50 free-to-play games that support online multiplayer. So theoretically, yeah, they're free-to-play online games. You don't need to have an Xbox Gold account to play them freely online. So good. Well, that's fantastic. 
All right. Well, good for Microsoft on finally coming through with that. Again, weird, but at least they, they made it right at this point and uh, good on them for that. But uh, that being said, we have concluded all the news we want to talk about this week, but there are still a few items left to talk about. Uh, Dennis, you have spoiled one of them already, but we have three items to talk about in the Blast from the Past segment. Again, Dennis spoiled one of them already, but we have two other items. Uh, both of those are t- Canadian TV shows, as was the one you spoiled. Yes, we somehow have a Canadian TV trinity, holy trinity here to discuss in our Blast from the Past this week. It's kind of wild how this all worked out. I'd also like to say that this week, more than any other week in recent memory for Blast from the Past, is really actually making me feel my age a little bit here. <laughs> like, because... You know, what will often happen on these blasts from the past is we'll get some movie that's like, oh, it's like 10 years old. Okay, fine. Oh, it's crazy. It's 10 years old. Or it's like, oh, it's celebrating a 50th anniversary or something like that, where it's like, okay, so 50 years is intangibly old to me because, you know, I'm in my late thirties. Like, obviously, like if it's, if it happened before I was born or like whatever, like if it was like when I was a child, it's always just going to be like an old movie in my head. Whereas these, I distinctly remember when they were all new and I was, old enough to know or to be either the target demographic for them when they were new. So now that I'm in my late thirties, it's kind of like, well, huh? (laughs) These things are how old? Huh? Oh, okay. So yeah, we could probably go oldest to newest, I think. So oldest to newest uh, that will take us back to April 20th of 1996 when the last episode of this Canadian series aired. It was a Canadian horror anthology series aimed at kids or a young audience demographic. Uh, perhaps you watched it back then. Perhaps you saw it in reruns. Perhaps you are watching the more recent, newer Nickelodeon incarnation of it. Uh, a modern, uh, modern remake, if you will, with new stories. Either way, you have likely heard of this show. Are you afraid of the dark? Yes, that's right. If you are not a Canadian and you are aware of this show, hey, that's the thing we gave to you. You're welcome. Don't destroy it. Yeah. Um, now, granted, I didn't really – like, I watched the odd episode here and there. Like, it was very much like uh, – <sighs> There was a lot of shows that were kind of like this show back then. You know, the things that were basically like the careful what you wish for kind of like, which is what these things generally were. Because, you know, I guess when we were growing up, this was sort of like a popular delivery mechanism for like teaching kids like important lessons that they wouldn't listen to otherwise, maybe. Um. Or like making them, I don't know. Anyways, Are You Afraid of the Dark was generally like that type of thing where it was like, it was under the, um, under the, uh, guise of a bunch of like kids sitting around a campfire at, you know, nighttime under the call, under the, the name of the Midnight Society who would basically just tell each other scary stories, you know. <laughs> And, you know, the, the joke being like, you know, I call this story whatever thing, which they would toss a handful of quote unquote midnight dust, which is basically just, you know, that, that kind of like stuff you'd get at a gas station. I don't know if you do it anymore, but like that thing you get at a gas station or whatever to throw over a fire to make the fire kind of like more intense and different colors and more, you know, kind of like 
give off different colored smoke and stuff. Yes, I believe called it's called it- gasoline. <laughs> yes, but they called it midnight dust, and it was always <laughs> submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. This story is called blah, blah, blah. And then it would just blow the dust under the fire, and then it would dissolve into, like, you know, the dramatic version of the story that was being told. Basically, it was like a whole TV series based on, like, what would normally be maybe um the Treehouse of Horror part of The Simpsons, except less wacky. Yeah, less wacky, uh, more, uh, young friendly, more, more youth friendly, uh, which then meant the stories weren't exactly all that scary either. Yeah, exactly. Like, I always kind of thought that, you know, I never really, I wasn't super into Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like, I kind of put it in the same area as Goosebumps and whatnot. It's just like, oh, it's just one of those kind of like, not really scary, but just kind of lame scary. So, yeah. I, I recall there being, uh, perhaps the, the episode that sticks out most in my mind is, you know, two kids, uh, two, I guess, young adults, teenagers, whatever you want to classify them as. In the original series, one of the stories was they were like sucked in or transported into a video game, but this video game was very much like, you know, them being stuck in a mall after dark, after it had closed, and they had to play through the different levels of the video game. And it was just really, really cheesy and looked very cheap and Canadian. Yeah. And they would go along and they would, you know, find different implements or tools or equipment they needed. Like, oh, this blaster. And it was just clearly a painted up super soaker or not even a super soaker. It was like a knockoff super soaker. Like the big kahuna or something? Something like that, yeah. Or even like its dollar store equivalent. Yeah. And so they, oh, there was a a giant pinball that uh, came down the escalator at one point and I think was chasing them and they managed to get out and the story concluded. They were transported back. Everything is fine. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I recall the, uh, my sister telling me about it, uh, but an episode that I think was her favorite one was an episode where a girl in high school in her locker found some, some old beaded necklace that, uh, uh, wasn't there before. So she put it on and then was transported back to the, the same school, the same spot, but like in the sixties and was in a hippie or w- became a hippie. <laughs> oh God. Okay. Which wasn't that scary, but I guess just kind of weird as like a time travel story. You know, it, it was kind of meant to be like a, a, an easier, more accessible, uh, twilight zone for kids. Yeah, Twilight Zone or um, Outer Limits or something like that. Yes, uh, Outer Limits was the other one I was trying to think of but could not remember the name of. So, See, I, I actually used to watch the Outer Limits as a kid, So, which is why I think in comparison I thought Are You Afraid of the Dark was very tame and lame. I was like, oh, it's like I think that's actually what it was where it's like I'm already watching like the scary adult version of this or even like – you know, watching X-Files or something like that was like way more scary and, you know, more intense when you're a kid. So this is just like literally kid stuff here. So what would I, what would I want to waste my time with this nonsense for? <laughs> it's sort of like why I didn't really watch it. But, you know, it's, it's a thing that, you know, it's fun to reference the Midnight Society thing and all that stuff. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, those of us of a certain age certainly recall this uh, show being a, uh, a very frequent part of the YTV lineup. Yeah. 
Yeah, very much so. And it's, it's also like a, a fun way of just kind of like feeling out how, if you're, if you're a lot older than people or if it's just, you know, you're kind of talking to people your age, which becomes a problem the older you get. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> if you're in a work situation where you're like, I don't know how much older or if I'm older than people. So maybe I'll make a little bit of a reference and know if no one laughs, I'll just know. It's like, okay, maybe, uh, never mind. Too hip for the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Wait, wait, wait to reference, uh, early season Simpsons there, grandpa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, so, so again, we were talking about Are You Afraid of the Dark? Its last episode aired on April 20th, 1996, but a couple of years after that, uh, was actually two episodes that premiered on the same day, both Canadian episodes, uh, one of them animated, and we'll talk about the animated one first. It had a shorter, uh, shorter lifespan, shorter run of things than, uh, the other one you spoiled earlier. But this uh, next one we're talking about premiered on April 22nd, 2001 on Teletoon here in Canada. And I believe MTV in the States was an animated series that was part of uh, a period of time where there was actually some really good animated uh, comedy programming that was airing on Teletoon, MTV in the States, other, I think the the WB or some of those other uh up the dial cable channels in the States had as well, you know, things like the Oblongs, Mission Hill or whatnot. Yeah. So well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is from that period in time where there's just some really good short lived, uh, comedy cartoon programs, but this one was undergrads. Yeah. I actually think it was about the same. I think it was produced at the same time, both by similar people as, um, clone high as well. Not to say that it's the same as clone high. Like I think the, the comedic tone of undergrads was a lot different than clone high, like a lot less, um, wacky and off the wall, but yeah, undergrads. Yeah. Like it, it always kind of blows my mind when I think back about undergrads because yeah, the original run of it was a single season, 13 episodes, which again was a lot of different shows had that same fate, um, these MTV Teletoon co-production, uh, TV shows had that same fate of, you know, one season, 13 episodes, no, um, no renewal or anything, but they were in like undergrads was like in reruns for a good, what, two years at least. At least if not longer. Cause I recall still watching it on Teletoon for, for several years after that, uh, now that made, you know, I can understand why, because Teletoon co-funded the production of that first season along with MTV, so they want to get their money's worth out of it. Totally understand. Yeah. But uh, the premise of Undergrads is that there are four friends, four lifelong friends, who are finished high school and are all, I believe, in their first years of college, but they're all kind of spread to the spread to the winds. They're all at different colleges, except for two of them who are attending the same college and are roommates. But the focus is of uh, focus of you, the uh, the viewer, is on the character Nitz, who's kind of your regular awkward, feels out of place, every guy first year college student. Uh, he is roommates with his friend Cal, who is the kind of do uh, kind of oblivious you know, doofus, uh, uh, ladies, man. Uh, yeah. There's their other friend, Rocco, who's the big brute. And then there's their other friend, Gimpy, who is off at, at a technical college. Who's kind of the, uh, 
uh, awkward, shut-in, nerd, uh, tech-centric character. Yeah. Who, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was in chat rooms and things like that with his name G Prime and whatnot. Big Star Wars fan. Um, yeah. But Calvin, yeah, like there's a lot of things I do remember about this show. Cause, yeah. I can't say Undergrads is my favorite show, but I would watch it when it was on. Like there was enough funny things about it that, you know, were like, like funny. Like the, the character of, you know, Calvin, or Cal, I should say, you know, like it was funny how oblivious he was and his whole thing of like, Hey guy, <laughs> like he would, his whole, cause I'm sure we've all met people like that where it's like, Hey guy, how you doing guy? Like, where you're not sure, does he not know my name or is he just like that aloof where it's just like, he thinks it's cool to just kind of like do that. Like, I, I don't know. It, uh, I mean, if all of the, the, the life's, you know, somewhat the, the life's, the, the trials, tribulations, ups and downs of Cal as he tried to, uh, or not Cal, but of Nitz as he tried to yeah. uh, negotiate his first, uh, first, year of this uh community or this college state U, which was a as generic a name as you can get and the last season ended somewhat on a cliffhanger where he's torn between you know the crush he has on this one girl but this other girl he meets and becomes friends with in university has a thing for him too which direction does he go and very yeah. i think the last scene was him just kind of sitting on the roof of his uh dormitory building just kind of staring out at the sunset wondering what the hell do I do as I go into year, you know, the summer before a second year and we never got a second year because we didn't get a second season. Yeah. Same fate as clone high. Yeah. 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 MTV pulled out of uh, funding or uh, producing a second season. Same as clone high. Mm-hmm. And also same as clone high ended the series on a cliffhanger. So, <laughs> So yeah, this was yeah. K- kind of a thing in the early 2000s with the uh, uh, comedy uh, cartoon programming would really only get a short run and that was it. Yeah, exactly. Now, unlike Clone High, there's been no announcement of any sort of uh, rebirth, new series, new episodes, uh, uh, final movie, anything like that. We at least know Clone High is uh, in production again with some new blood behind it, like unlikely to have Gandhi as a character. Yeah. Um, Though apparently, according to Wikipedia, undergrads, like, they finished, like, there was in talks for a new movie, and apparently the first draft of the script was completed back in January of this year. Whether it's going to go anywhere, I have no idea, but that might be kind of interesting. Interesting. And one thing I am learning, actually, just by skimming over the Wikipedia page for the show, one thing I, I'm learning now, but I never knew or realized then, Pete Williams, who is... Uh, I believe the creator of the undergrad's undergrad show was the voice of all four friends. Yeah. He's the voice of all four friends as well as a few of other people like the Dougler and uh, a couple of other characters from what I recall. I think a couple of the teachers and stuff as well, but yeah. Huh. I didn't know it uh, no, ever noticed that it was the same voice uh, doing all four because they're all distinctly different. So yeah. A credit to uh, uh, Pete Williams and his uh, voice acting ability Con- had me fooled for all these years. <laughs> Indeed. But uh, let's move on to the third and final Canadian TV series we have to talk about. 
in our Blast from the Past uh, segment of this show. It's a show, again, that uh, we watched and saw when it was new, which takes us, again, all the way back to April 22nd of the year 2001. And as Dennis spoiled earlier, it aired on Showcase. It was one end of the Showcase cable channel spectrum, but this was the big breadwinner of that Showcase channel for so many years. This is the show Trailer Park Boys. Yes, to be fair, no one would have known it was a spoiler and <laughs> that, yeah, I didn't technically spoil it. I, I think it's an interesting thing, though. Whenever you mention Showcase, I think you kind of almost have to mention the Trailer Park Boys because it's their biggest export and it's the thing that kind of like, frankly, surprisingly, kept the station kind of going, right? For a long time, seven, I think what, seven, eight seasons over the course of, uh, seven years airing on Showcase. Like, this, yeah. it wasn't just a big show on Showcase. It was a big show in Canadian television. Yeah. And a big show in certain parts of the world that aren't Canada, believe it or not. Which, yeah, I, it's, it's actually, if you were like, it, this is one of those things where it doesn't make any sense how popular this show is. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense how it became popular because it's so like, it feels very niche. Like, it was very kind of like, I remember when I first watched it, like, I don't think I saw the first episode. I just remember the thing I, like, it was so bizarre to me. That it was like, yeah, it was just like the, the shenanigans that like, you know, a bunch of dirt bags that lived in the trailer park were getting up to. And yeah, like they were always trying to like cook up get rich quick schemes that usually involved them selling drugs and, you know, being drunk and whatever else. But the thing that I remember, like the first joke I remember distinctly is being like, oh, okay, this show has a very kind of unique and very interesting comedic voice was when they had the one character, Julian, who always has a drink. And like, you know, I, for some reason, like, you know, it's a thing you vaguely notice, but it's not a thing that like you like really like connect as being like anything that's like specifically tied to his character. Like you'd think it's just like a, maybe something related to him being a drunk or something fine. But I remember there was a scene in one episode where they, they were riding in a car and then, the car ended up, you know, something happened and the car flipped over a bunch and like they were all getting out of this car that was like on its roof and his drink was fine. <laughs> <laughs> that always struck me as very funny. Like it's like, well, whoever came up with this is really funny. So yeah, it's, uh, if you've never seen it before, it's its own thing for sure. Yes, I think that's uh, a good way to to put it. The the premise again, th you know, three friends living in a trailer park, uh two of which have families uh who also live in the trailer park, uh cooking up get rich quick schemes as I think two of them are freshly released from jail and they're on their what freedom 35 or freedom 45 plan to try and just make enough money so they can retire and live off that and not have to worry about working or worry about money and they go about things in just the absolute wrong and mis just misguided approach every single time. Yeah. And it also like it's it's a very funny dynamic because all three of the characters 
they're, they're not smart men. <laughs> they're, they're, they're stupid, but there's a perceived hierarchy that they have amongst all of them where one acts like the lead. Well, there's a power struggle that happens. I mean, if you, if you're completely new to the trailer park boys, um, like Ricky and Julian both think that they're the leader. And like, they're constantly like, you know, talking about like how, you know, like they, I think it's like understood that like Julian is smarter than Ricky, but they all kind of like look to bubbles as being the smart one, but they're all dumb (laughs) and they're all stupid for various reasons and different reasons. And yeah, I don't know. Like it's, it's very much a show that I don't really know how they got 13 seasons worth of stuff out of it, but they have. And somehow like, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I've always said personally, I really like trailer park boys, but I can't watch too much of it in a row because it gets very kind of cringy and like kind of samey. But like, you know, if something's on again, like not that we're ever really in that type of situation anymore, you know, because we don't really watch TV the same way anymore. But if it was on, I'd probably watch it. You know, someone's playing trailer park boys. I'll watch it and enjoy it. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's like, it's, it's a little bit hard to stream like, you know, several episodes in a row, kind of like, you know, a Kirby enthusiasm or something where it's like, I feel like I need a break from this. I I can get that. I can see where you're uh, coming from with that. Uh, a bit samey, a bit, a bit, yeah, it's a bit much, especially with uh, so much of the uh, uh, plot lines or whatnot in revolve around them maybe doing illegal, illicit things that, that uh, and there's only so much, uh, so much stupidity you can take. Yeah. Though admittedly, there are some, like several funny things that like have stuck with me in my brain as funny things that, you know, will pop up into my head every now and then. Like the character that Jonathan Torrens brought to this series of, uh, his white rapper, J-Rock of, uh, him basically, you know, at when the show came out, it was the early two thousands. So like, it was just sort of like the end of the whole, um, new metal thing was happening, you know? So like we had Fred Durst and we had like, that whole thing happening and Eminem was first getting popular. So yeah, it was like, yeah, this was their, their take on that, except he, he was trying to trying too hard to act like a badass, even though he really wasn't a badass. And the thing that pops into my head as being very funny was like, they had him doing a concert one time, but he was self censoring. So he was adding beeps in the place of words. So he was like, yeah, all you mother beep, do, do, do. But he would be saying the word beep, just like I just did. So it was like, what? So, yeah, that's one of the things I think is funny. And also what they call the Rickyisms. These like, like Ricky does believe himself not to be smart and his, he's generally right. Like his speech is, uh, as they say on Wikipedia, laced with malapropisms. That's basically him saying stuff entirely wrong. Like, like there's a whole page. I don't think it's been updated in years, but you know, in the earlier days of Facebook, there was a page Rickyisms that was really funny. Just him like mangling, just him mangling like terms like, you know, 
like, for example, um, the actual word or phrase, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. What Ricky said was, a chain is only as long as your longest strong chain. (laughs) 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 Or like, or like, you know, uh, the, the, maybe the, the most famous one is, you know, the actual phrase of, I told you so, was the, <laughs> the, the Ricky one was, atodasso, like, atodasso. <laughs> like, at, like, atodasso. <laughs> or like, badminton was bagminton. Like, there's a whole list of them I'm just kind of reading off of now, like, Beauty of the eye of beauty is in the eye of the beholder is beauty is in the eye of when you hold her, <laughs> you know, reading or studying was what he called book learning <laughs> breakfast in bed was breakfast at bed, <laughs> bury the hatchet and burn the candle at both ends were burn the hatchet at both ends. <laughs> <laughs> so like, or the carburetor being a carbonator <laughs> or a catch 22 situation being a catch 23 situation. <laughs> Just, just things that are just like a little bit mangled and wrong that you, you know what he's saying, but you're like, oh god, what are you saying? Like, I always appreciated that about Trailer Park Boys. Like, that was always, like, that was one of the funniest parts of the show to me. Like, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, so Trailer Park Boys. Yeah. Debuted 20 years ago. And, uh, still going in some way, shape, or form. It uh, hasn't been on Showcase for a number of years, but, uh, was then, uh, picked up by Netflix for a number of seasons and now a couple specials. And interesting enough that while the show is still going, the three main actors, Rob Wells, John Paul Tremblay, and Mike Smith, who play, uh, Ricky Julian and Bubbles, they are the owners of the Trailer Park Boys property. So they bought the, the franchise, they bought the, uh, uh, series and all the rights to it and everything, I think uh, like seven, eight years ago now. And so they've been the ones keeping it going. They have their own, uh, platform online, their own internet streaming network called SwearNet. Yeah. Which, which, uh, I mean, I recall it initially starting and the big thing being, oh, there's going to be swears and like uncensored, uh, profanity and whatnot, which, Okay, if the, if that's an appeal to you, fine. But I mean, credit them for uh, for leaning into this and just still going at it and being able to crank it out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Again, it's very samey, but there's 13 seasons of it, and it wouldn't have been you know picked up by Netflix and renewed so many times if people weren't watching it. So can't really argue with that. So good for them for finding their niche and rolling with it. That's true. And having a uh, a solid Canadian comedy exports TV series, which doesn't really happen that often. No, I mean, like, what is it? Basically, Kids in the Hall and Trailer Park Boys, and that's almost it? Uh, and I think more recently, Letterkenny. Right. Letterkenny is also, like, the third one right now, like, the, the current version. Yeah. So it's like once every, like, 15, 20 years we get one. <laughs> <laughs> go us. Yeah. Yeah, go Canada. But, uh, you know, I recall from, uh, you know, perhaps what kind of made Trailer Park Boys work is just how misguided, you know, Ricky, Julian, and Bubbles all were. But I didn't really sense in watching it that they were overtly malicious or hard no. characters. No, and I think that's part of the appeal, too. Like, they're not – like, yeah, they're interested in selling drugs and stuff, but, like – 
anything they do is just basically, they don't really, like, nothing is like, they're not interested in hurting people physically. Like, yeah, they're gonna steal from people and stuff, but it's like a, it's like a stupid version of Robin Hood, almost, in a way. Where they view themselves as, you know, the poor, because they are. And, you know, they're just, they're viewing people, maybe that aren't rich as rich, <laughs> but their, their perceptions are skewed. So, yeah. And, yeah, I, I always liked the, you know, the, the struggle between Mr. Leahy and particularly Ricky, but Julie and Ricky and Bubbles and the whole character of Jim Leahy as well. Unfortunately, he's, you know, Mr. John Dunderworth passed away a few years ago. So unfortunately, Leahy's no longer in the trailer park, but, um, yeah, for when he was good stuff. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Ricky, Julian and Bubbles kind of, they kind of reminded me of uh, early seasons Homer Simpson. Yeah, I I could see that. Yeah, where he's misguided, oafish, but not malicious, well-meaning, uh, and had a, a certain sense of morality and moral code to them. Like, they're not nihilists or anarchists just going around doing things for the sake of doing them or stealing for the sake of stealing. No, there's there's a purpose, albeit oftentimes a, like a, a wrong-headed purpose behind it. But, uh, yeah, there, there's... Somewhat of an endearing charm to, to Ricky, Julian, and Bubbles. But again, the comedy, uh, very profane, not for children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for an older audience, but, uh, started, Trailer Park Boys did, started 20 years ago this week on Showcase. Uh, and before that, we also spoke of Undergrads, which, uh, started on Teletoon in Canada at the same time, April 22nd, 2001. And, uh, we spoke prior to all of that of a very different series, Are You Afraid of the Dark, which came to a conclusion April 20th, 1996, which uh, that's a lot of shows that uh, we have watched through the course of our lifetime here, uh, mm-hmm. all making their way into the blast from the past. So uh, I hope you feel uh, old for listening. Uh, if you uh, are not like us and perhaps are younger and uh, haven't heard of these shows, perhaps you will take this as an opportunity to actually check them out. Perhaps add them to your your watch list on whatever streaming platform you can find them. Seek them out. Seek them out in your own way. Whatever works for you, uh, go check them out. Uh, I'm gonna say of the three, are you afraid of the dark? Holds up the worst. Oh yeah, probably. I mean, Trailer Park Boys. There's not even really anything quote unquote to hold up. It's still going. So. Yeah, it's whether you like it or not. Like, it's been pretty consistent over the last 20 years, so not really a lot to change there. True enough. And Undergrads was very much a a moment in time in animation and uh, uh, animated programming on television. Again, came from the same time as Clone High, Mission Hill, Oblongs. Uh, I think, wasn't that around the same time as the Dilbert TV series? Or was Dilbert a couple of years before? I think Dilbert was maybe before. I don't know if Dilbert was an MTV program, though, was it? Uh, no, Dilbert was on uh, an entirely other network, but uh, yeah, of animated uh, comedy programming. So yeah, uh, check it all yeah. out in whatever way you are able to. And uh, let us know your thoughts on any of that. Again, you can email us info at com or hit us up, reach us and follow us and like us and tickle us and touch us all through social media. We are at The Arcade Show on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you haven't done so already, treat yourself to subscribing to this podcast on both Google Play 
and iTunes, that being the podcast section of Google Play, not the App Store or not the game section, the podcast section of Google Play. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So that about wraps us up for this week, and we thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and we hope you can join us again next time. So until then, good night, everyone. Good night. (laughs) Oh, my God.